the reading of the scriptures from Romans chapter 15, uh, verses 14 to 21. I invite your reverent attention to the public reading of God's holy word here in Romans 15. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text this morning begins the last section of the book of Romans. If you ponder a moment, we, uh, we begin looking at all mankind uh, condemned and under sin, um, the fallenness of mankind. And then we moved into the grace of God, providing a way of salvation through Jesus Christ, the great doctrines of justification. Then chapter 12, uh, the great uh, doctrines of sanctification, where we participate in uh, setting ourselves uh, in service to our great God, uh, not conformed to this world. Uh, and now this final section where Paul will deal with uh, some personal matters uh, regarding uh, his personal relationships with them. And uh, it's very important, I think, to uh, emulate the Apostle Paul in that aspect. Uh, because I have this philosophy, it may not be yours, but certainly a measure of mine, perhaps, should be yours, and that is all of life uh, is about relationships. Um, I know when I was in, before I retired in business, I, the years past, the decades past, uh, business, I developed a growing sense that uh, selling products is not just selling products, it's selling relationships and service. And so that relationships are so critically important. And that is just as true, ladies and gentlemen, in the life of the church. Because we're a people, uh, we congregate, and God puts us in relationships with one another. And that's where Paul will take us uh, in this last uh, section. And it is key, I think, to understand that the very central focus of his relationship was the gospel. And so, we think of the text, Paul's ministry was as a priest. 
with the desire that his service be acceptable to God, verses 14 to 16. And he boasts of uh, the accomplishments of Christ through him in verses 17 to 21. The common theme of all of that is compressed into the single word of the gospel. Uh, the critical factor of his personal relationship with the church is that it uh, portrays uh, the nature and uh, philosophy of Paul's ministry. And obviously, just simply in the reading of the text, is that he wants the gospel to advance. In the church at Rome, and really everywhere he has been, and we will learn everywhere he wants to go. Uh, now, you might say to yourself, well, I mean, if that's obvious, I mean, it's a church. I mean, what else should the church be centered on but the gospel? It's really not that way today. Um, today, it's sociology light, universalism, transcendentalism, pantheism, universalism, and perhaps the most prevalent of all in the American church, making people happy, pleasing them. You say, Phil, it's, uh, it's, it is that way. It's become the nature of the American church. And it's been ongoing for, uh, I'm not so sure, not some 200 years. Now, obviously, uh, it's picked up momentum and intensity uh, in our own uh, lives and the age in which we live, but it's, I think, a settled fact that the church has been drifting more and more away from the gospel to just simply humanity and pleasing mankind with whatever message works. I often find in my dealings with people, well, Barisak, what do you do? Well, I, I preach in a church and Tell them about the church. And at some point, their eyes begin to glaze over. And I know what's happening. They begin to think, oh, Phil, you're just telling me that yours is the only church in town and uh, yours is the greatest and the best. Uh, and people don't like to hear that. kind of. And I understand that, but I'm not really telling them that at all. What I am telling them is the gospel is the greatest and the best and the only and when you depart from that, I don't care what the name of your church is, you, you are drifting very dangerous ground. It should be the gospel that uh, makes us different in the pleasing of God, uh, the sole purpose of our heartbeats. So Paul begins in verse 14 with a uh, commendation. Uh, it's a commendation in three parts. Uh, first, he says that you are full of goodness, uh, referencing uh, upright conduct. And it's important to recognize how important the gospel is in that, because the gospel changes lives. If the gospel is truly received, it changes the receiver and the recipient. And so for Paul to say that they are full of goodness, it means that something radical has happened in the church of Rome. And what is that? 
the gospel is taken. It's changing lives. Second, he says they are filled. The agents are not specified. The content is, but the agents, uh, again, references the gospel. The agents we know, contextually, are the Apostle Paul and the triune Godhead. And that in and of itself is the gospel because God gives to mankind to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, he doesn't commission rocks and trees. He commissions men. And Paul was such a man. Uh, and they are filled. What are they filled with? Well, content again is very clearly specified in the text. Uh, and that is they are filled with all knowledge. Knowledge. One of my favorite texts in Scriptures, Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. Uh, speaks of men who know God and who uh, labor to do the right thing. And the context is a time of incredible danger. Their lives are being threatened. And yet there's, there is, from the words of Daniel, a class of men and women, and I'm sure boys and girls, who truly knew God. And that is what is going to equip them and enable them to withstand the external and internal threats to their faith. Daniel goes on to add, and they will do the right things the importance, the critical importance of the knowledge of God. And one of the reasons I share that is because one of the greatest corruptions in the American church today is the dualism of head knowledge and heart knowledge. I mean, it's like that's everywhere. I begin to pick up on it, you know, as a fairly young Christian, people talk about head knowledge. What is head knowledge and heart knowledge? reason I was always confused by that is, I mean, knowledge is knowledge. I mean, there's not the head law of gravity and the heart law of gravity. There's simply the law of gravity. And it works every time. But its reason it's so dangerous is because it's an essential corruption of the importance of the gospel. And it's really what people are really proclaiming is the importance of heart knowledge. In the Bible, the heart is a figure of speech for the inner man. And there is no heart knowledge. It's just simply the knowledge of God. And that dualism is critical because it begins to shift people into emotionalism. What do you think we have every day in most churches? Well, 40 minutes of uh, music and uh, other things, and again, I don't have any problem with music, obviously an important part of our services, but again, uh, God wants us to know Him. When you look at the prayers of the Apostle Paul, he continually says things, I want you to know God and to know Him. The other problem with heart knowledge is that it leads, I think, radically into a self-defined concept of biblical theology. 
Now, it is, I would radically affirm, it is critical to understand the true contrast. And that is that knowledge and affections go together. They're not separate. They go together. True affections come from the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of God leads to genuine affections. I mean, how can you know the sovereignty of God and not be deeply humble that God would save you? That, that is the truth. Not the dualism of head knowledge and heart knowledge, but that knowledge and affections never contradict one another. Never are working against one another. And we must have both. Here, Paul wants them filled with all knowledge. And I think we could add from Paul's theology that as you are filled with the knowledge of God, your affections will follow and be profoundly moved. That's why we, I I trust in God's grace and mercy, are given to the study of God, knowing full well that our affections are intertwined with the object of our study. We don't come to study sociology, the village, feeling good about, I'm not against feeling good about yourself, but that's, take that in another course. I truly believe if you know God, you will automatically feel good about yourself because the gospel has reached you and the love of God has reached you. And what else could you feel but blessed to be preserved by the great God of heaven? It's what Paul wants them full of. Thirdly, they are, he's commending them for being able to admonish The word admonish is literally to put in mind of one another. To be able to admonish one another. Why? Because uh, every one of us who are Christians are still affected by the fall. And we are still subject to great temptations and wandering and drifting. And Paul says, I want you to be able to admonish one another. First Thessalonians chapter 5. In verse 14, Paul says, And we urge your brethren to admonish the unruly, or the wayward, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all men. The, uh, the church is an imperfect society that comes to worship a perfect Savior. And that fallenness will only be corrected when He comes uh, to glorify us. And it's important that we meet as individuals because we can correct one another. We can be a check and a guard to one another because of the dangers of the times. Paul says, I want you able to admonish. It's very interesting that that phrase is set within the context that it is. Because look very quickly at chapter 16 and verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause divisions and hindrances. There's already a danger within the church at Rome. What One of my deep convictions as a Christian is that preachers don't warn anymore. 
and neither do people correct. I hope it's different at Grace Bible Church. Because that's a fundamental part of the ministry. It's everywhere in the Testaments. The prophets warning the visible people of God. The apostles warning the visible people of God. But the church at Rome is called upon and commended to to admonish. In verses 15 to 16, Paul speaks of the nature of his ministry, chiefly that it's apostolic. I believe, as you know, this is not something that can be said today. Uh, there is a movement in uh, uh, churches where uh, the notion is presented that all of the gifts and offices uh, that existed in uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament uh, are present today. I, it's not my message today, but I simply reject that. Uh, I believe the Apostle Paul represented the apostolic company. Uh, and that that office no longer exists today. Uh, but I, I even have acquaintances that believe that there are apostles today. And all of the miracles of power exist today. I believe in miracles, but I'm not so sure that uh, men mediate them. But Paul is saying that his uh, ministry, he had a ministry that was given to him. He's an apostle. Uh, but there is something that I would like to press that I, I think radically continues today, and I say this over and over again. It's not the continuation of the apostolic ministry or that some man is the vicar of Christ upon the earth. The Holy Spirit's the only vicar of Christ upon the earth. Uh, but there is, I think, something that's uh, applicable here, and that is doctrinal succession, which we radically believe Grace Bible Church. That we want to perpetuate the theology of the Apostle Paul and Peter and the Testaments. That we engage in that succession. It's a central part of our ministry. It is the essence of the Gospel itself. And ministry is the Gospel. Notice Paul's language. The grace that was given to me. It's used of his office. Grace that was given. I know you've come across that phrase before. Book of Romans. All of us as Christians are gifted in certain ways to be a blessing to the church. And those gifts are given to us by the grace of God. We didn't earn them. We were gifted by God's sovereign grace. Something even more radical. The gospel was given to us by God's sovereign grace. Let's turn to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1 and verse 9. I'm quick to remind you that I'm not a universalist. God is saving His people. All men without distinction. But I also know that the Scriptures teach He doesn't save everyone. 
2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. What does your Bible say? Mine says from all eternity. In eternity past, God elected His people. Sends His Son to buy them, His Spirit to gather them. That's an incredible progress of the gospel given by His grace. Most churches today believe that you participate in earning it in some way. You qualify yourself. I will tell you, the gospel is He doesn't elect the qualified. He saves the lost. From eternity past. Incredible. Incredible that we've forgotten that. The doctrines of the sovereign grace of God are in marked decline in American churches. I believe even in the Reformed churches. But what a thing to catch us, remind us, provoke us of God's mercy. Now Paul makes his philosophy of his gospel ministry Evident, verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The word minister here is used to priestly service in the Old Testament. It's from this Greek word that we have the English word liturgy. Liturgy, which is a defined message. Furthermore, his service is specified. Serving as a priest in the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Notice something that's critical about this. It is God's gospel. It is objective. It is propositional. He saves by His Son, Jesus Christ, and in no other way. We have no warrant whatsoever as ministers of the gospel, whether it be me or you, to redefine in any other way because that abrogates and disqualifies the service of the minister and deceives the recipient. It is God's gospel and not ours to mess with. Messengers are given no latitude over the message. It's a critical factor of gospel, true gospel ministry today that we're simply messengers. The message is not ours. If you study church history, and I, I trust you have occasion to do so, what you learn is throughout the centuries is that churches and denominations are always messing with the message. Paul has no thought of that whatsoever, and neither should we. The word ministry or serving as a priest is derived from the noun for temple. So that without question, Paul saw himself as a minister in the end time temple. Great application here in terms of the Protestant Reformation. One of the most radical teachings of the Protestant Reformation was the priesthood of every believer. 
As you know, there are those denominations in which uh, there are a separate class of ministers that are priests. In the Protestant Reformation, we are all priests. I am a priest, you are a priest. And we all engage in different ways, in different service, to sustain the church for the glory of God. And as a priest, Paul brings an offering. That's the purpose of his service. Very interesting here. Oftentimes think of, well, I, I gave my tithes to the church. And specified time to do that. And gave my offering. You study the life of the Apostle Paul, his entire life was an offering. That's the entirety of the theology of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Again, I'm not, I mean, I understand the ministry is supported through gifts and ties. I get that. The greater reality, the importance of the gospel is our entire lives are an offering to God. It's not like we just come to church on Sunday morning and check that. Well, I, I did that. You know, Bowersox is pleased. The elders are pleased. Uh, no, our entire life. Whatever your service, even with your employer, is as a ministry. Your entertainment is, is an offering of God because you're pleased that God gives you the gift of leisure and entertainment. And if you shouldn't be able to do certain things, then uh, you leave that off uh, because there are some things with which we are enjoying. But nonetheless, the entirety of our lives, even when we sleep, belongs to God. And metaphorically, in Paul's ministry, the offering of uh, uh, that he brings to God is his service among the Gentiles. That's what he brings for the glory of God. He wants it to be well received by God and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Notice, notice, very interesting here, the Trinity. Priestly service about Christ. Serving God's Gospel. And now sanctified or set apart by the Holy Spirit. To restate this, more critical way in terms of our reference to the church, you would not want to bring an offering that offends the deity. Let's look at an example of this. Malachi chapter 1. It's the last book of, of uh, the Old Testament, so fairly easy to find. Say, Phil, no, nobody would do that in the church. I mean, you know, nobody would, when the offering plate is passed around, nobody would put a turkey that was spoiled. Send me your turkeys. But Malachi chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Uh, God has a complaint against his covenant people. And they're staggered by the complaint. That's the whole context. They say, What? We've offended you? How have we offended you, God? You tell us. 
That's a dangerous way to talk to God, by the way, but fairly common. Notice, uh, he's telling the priests in verse 6 that they've despised his name. Then he tells them how they're despising his name. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? I mean, as you know, when you study the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the priests were to qualify the sacrificial offerings. You could not bring a wounded lamb. Like, well, nature kind of messed with me. Had a lamb that was born broken. I'll just take it to God. By the way, do you think that way about God? I'll present my body something less than is honoring to Him? You couldn't bring a a blind sacrifice. You couldn't, you couldn't take a lamb that had been run over by a chariot. Like, like really what, you know what they're saying here? Give the cheap to God. He'll be pleased with it. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel, God is not pleased with cheap. He wants a changed heart. And the gospel radically changes hearts over time and in degree. I understand that. To be very careful about having such a low view of God that you could bring a sacrifice that's unworthy of Him. By the way, you think that's in the American church today? Absolutely. What do you think this entire alternative lifestyle ministry is in the life of the church? God creates you. God defines you, and you pervert his creation? You're displeased with what he did and made of you? And you corrupt in your actions? And now that's in the church? We not only let it in the church, we ordain some of them as ministers. You think God's pleased with that? I'm not setting myself apart as better than anyone else. I'm a sinner regardless. But I have a deep understanding that God frames the gospel and affects changes. And that's what Paul is saying. He's bringing an offering of Gentiles that have been converted to Jesus Christ. He's commended them. Now he's telling them the uh, nature of his ministry. By the way, that's just as true as an unrepentant lifestyle. Well, I've did something and no one ever going to know. Well, God knows, obviously. That's why we have an occasion for uh, acknowledging that we're sinners and thanking God for forgiveness. The start of every service. Unrepentant lifestyles are disqualified sacrifices and profane His temple. Don't profane your service. All of us are sinners. All of us acknowledge that we are that. And we continually pray for God to be gracious to us to radically intensify His work in our lives. 
and to lay hold of the means that he gives to us that we would be the reality of Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. The outcome of Paul's ministry, verses 17 to 21, is a boast. Uh, when you think of the work of the gospel, that's the only thing you can boast in. You want to boast in something. You can't boast in your great talents because God gave you those talents. I I always love, I mean, I understand. I love athletics like 40% of you, whatever. You know, seeing some great athlete catch an incredible pass. Sometimes they do this. I get it. But God gives you your talents. He also gives you the time and the coaches and the mentors, regardless of your occupation, to make you better, uh, to be good in His service and worthy, and acknowledging Him, that He gave you, kept you, and has preserved you. And so Paul speaks of nothing except what Christ has accomplished through Him. This is the Gospel referencing definite accomplishments. And what did Christ enable the Apostle Paul to secure among the Gentiles? Look at the text. Obedience among the Gentiles. How can you have a church without the importance of obedience? You cannot. How can you ordain lawlessness in ministry and call yourself a church? You cannot. Obedience among the Gentiles and the power of miracles and the power of Holy Spirit The divine provision, the Spirit among us. Securing the outcome of obedience. It's why we come to hear the Scriptures. It's why we come to pray. Not just corporately, but individually throughout the whole week. Because it's not just Sunday that belongs to God. It's every day that belongs to God. And that we're equipping ourselves, not being conformed to this world. The antonym to to obedience is rebellion and lawlessness. But Christ's accomplishments caused the obedience of the church at Rome. That's grace. It's the sovereign grace of God. The outcome is specified in results. Verse 19. If you, if you look at the text. Verse 19. So that. First I have fully preached the gospel about Christ from Jerusalem and round about as far as Elycrium. To me this is a geographic movement from east to west. I personally see it as a merism specifying everything in between as strategic locales where Paul preached and established churches on his three missionary journeys. Beautiful metaphor in a book by uh, Greg Beale on the temple. He says, we're like the old explorers that would ride on their ships to find distant lands to claim them for their king. And they'd get on the beach and they'd plant a flag. The flag of France or Spain or England. That's what Paul is doing. 
But his flag is the flag of heaven. For ownership for God, the advancement of the gospel. Central to his life and his work. As it should be central to our life and work and everything that we're about. And this was occasioned by miracles validating the apostolic office and inaugurating the end time creation. Secondly, he earnestly aspired to preach the gospel on frontiers where other men had not been. We need to think in those terms. We need to be like NASA. Want to catch a ride to Mars? I don't, but some people do. But thinking of where we can labor to the advancement of the gospel, to claim it, every thought captive for the glory of Christ. Frontiers where the gospel hasn't reached or been perverted. And Paul was a prisoner with one content. Different locations, but the same message. He went where others dared to go and was undeterred by the hardships and dangers. Not an easy ministry, but God's grace always provides. Lastly, verse 21, uh, the Apostle Paul repairs to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15. Uh, You know this... uh, from our study of the book of Isaiah as the beginning of the fourth servant song, extolling the majesties of the great servant, servant of the Lord, who you and I know as Jesus Christ. It's about Messiah and His mission. And the song begins with a declaration of uh, of victory in the midst of accomplishment and triumph secured by his passion. The priest became the sacrifice and offered himself to secure all men without distinction. Become a light to the nations. Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. A light to gather the lost. He's the only light to show the way to heaven who gives us His Word, which shows us the way to heaven. If you're not a Christian, that light points to Him, Christ the Messiah, whose passion and sacrifice is the only way to have a relationship with God the Father. There's no other way but Him. It's a sacrifice of infinite value, so extensive that in the servant song, kings are astonished. Look with me, if you would, at the end of the song. Verses 11 and 12. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with a great. He will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressions. In other words, he accomplished everything God the Father gave him to do. He won them and gathers them unto himself. And that causes kings to be astonished. You know why? Because he did it on the cross at the weakest point of all of humanity. 
and the weakest point of his humanity is the strength of the power of the divine Godhead in God the Son. He doesn't need a mighty man. God uses weakness. By the way, are you troubled by your weaknesses? Don't be. That's what God uses. Because He uses your weaknesses to trust Him. That is how the Gospel advances. Paul quotes the song as having a partial fulfillment in his ministry, meaning that he aligned himself with the Messianic mission and Christ's success is his success. So where have we come and gone? Paul's relationship with the church at Rome, the gospel. The gospel. I know we're not apostles, but we can, to a man, to a woman, to a boy and girl, we can share the gospel. I can't really tell you how, other than to pray, to be humble, to look for opportunities. I can tell you the message. Paul has given you that. But it's the greatest relationship of all of life to see the advancement of the gospel. The essence of ministry. Not just this this pulpit. Your life. Ministry of the gospel to be an offering. Well-pleasing to God. That the nature of genuine ministry is preaching with the sole content being Christ. Everything else is false regarding a relationship with the eternal God. The philosophy of ministry is that God will visit the divine accomplishment with success. And you and I are privileged to so participate in the greatest endeavors of all of life. The Gospel.